0: Good evening. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Thought of René Girard. In nine books published over a period of 40 years, French thinker René Girard has covered an intellectual territory that ranges from psychology to anthropology, from Greek tragedy to the modern novel, from Shakespeare to the Bible. His most recent book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, is an interpretation of the New Testament and a further development of ideas that he first presented in two earlier works, The Scapegoat and Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. Girard writes as a Christian, but what he puts forward in these writings is neither theology nor spiritual testimony. He believes that the gospel is an intellectual breakthrough, that it offers exactly what Jesus says it does. The Key to Knowledge, The Revelation of Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. What is revealed, Girard thinks, is the hidden violence that is built into all cultures. And tonight he'll explain why he thinks so, and what he thinks the significance of this revelation is. Our program is part three of a series of five programs about René Girard, called The Scapegoat. It's presented by David Cayley.
1: In his first two books, Deceit, Desire, and the Novel, and Violence and the Sacred, René Girard put forward an account of human violence that he called the mimetic theory. The theory holds that all non-instinctual desire is mimetic or imitative. We imitate each other's desires, and so our desires frequently converge on the same objects, leading to conflict. And conflict, too, is mimetic, according to Girard's theory, which means that once begun, it tends to intensify and spread as people copy each other's violence. A war, a feud, even an ordinary bar brawl are all examples. Human societies, therefore, face a permanent threat of runaway violence. The first cultures, Girard believes, solve this problem by channeling their violence towards sacrificial victims. He thinks that this solution must have arisen in the first place from a spontaneous discovery, that when everyone opposes a single victim, an order is created, and then gradually developed into a cultural system anchored on regular sacrifices. He calls this discovery the foundational murder. But cultures that created order in this way Gerard stresses, did not understand what they were doing. For them, the awe-inspiring transmutation of violence into order was sacred, and their scapegoat victims were gods. This was a necessary illusion, Girard believes, first because these cultures had no other way of maintaining order, and second because sacrifice only works when it is believed to be a divine and not a human requirement. So the very existence of this cultural system depended on its suppressing any recognition of its own violent origins. And here, at last, we come to the Bible. Because it is in the Bible, Girard says, that this universal cultural order founded on scapegoats is demystified and its violence laid bare. And this demystification begins, he says, from the Bible's opening scene, which pictures the root of the violence, mimetic desire. Adam and
2: Eve, the thing which is fascinating is that uh, neither one really desires the apple. Eve comes first. She's approached by the serpent, and it's a serpent who instills into her the desire for the apple, says you'll be like God, and so forth. And then... She transmits that desire to Adam. She uh, gets him to do it. And the scene is played back in reverse after that when uh, God asks Adam, What happened? And uh, Adam replies something like, She made me uh, eat of the forbidden fruit. And uh, Eve uh, says uh, it's a serpent who did it. I mean, there cannot be any better illustration of mimetic desire. And I like the reading because, uh, you know, the medieval reading was that uh, Eve is a real sinner. Because she's the first one to desire. But there you say no. I mean, she's exactly in the same situation as uh, Adam. She gets a desire from someone else, too. And, uh, of course, the role of uh, Satan is to communicate mimetic desire, because Satan is an imitator, and Satan likes to be imitated, like all imitators,
1: therefore communicates mimetic desire. Satan, in Girard's reading, personifies mimetic desire, and he takes on this role most fully in the New Testament. There he appears first as a model who invites imitation, and then as an obstacle, a tempter and then an adversary in the traditional language. This follows what Girard understands to be the mechanics of mimetic desire. Others encourage us to imitate their desires, but as soon as we do, we find that they have become competitors because now we want the same thing and are in each other's way. The Greek word that the New Testament uses for this feature of mimetic desire, Girard says, is scandalon, which means literally snare or stumbling block. And it associates the word, he says, with Satan. The
2: scandalon is the model that becomes an obstacle, period. The scandalon is Satan when he becomes the ad- adversary. When he's, you imitate him so you think he's not going to be in the way, yes, he's there as an obstacle, suddenly. Instead of being the seducer, he threatens you. He retaliates against you. Strange transformation. The proof of this, you have a sentence of Jesus which is very, very uh, explains it all. You know when he announces his passion for the first time, Peter says, "No master, this will not happen to you. You're going to be successful, uh, don't think you're going to die. We'll all win the battle together." and there jesus says move away from me vade retro satan
1: it says in the king james get thee behind me
2: get thee behind me you see get thee behind me because it's a physical obstacle to a stumbling block therefore what does it mean peter says to christ imitate my desire i have a desire for success i'm part of your enterprise And I tell you, your enterprise is not going to fail. What kind of a CEO are you? You see what I mean? (laughs) And Jesus says, that's what Satan is. This desire for success is sure to bring scandal on. And indeed, what would happen if Jesus imitated Peter? After one week, maybe, or three days, they'd become mimetic rivals for the leadership of this messianic group. You know, And it would be the end of it. We'd never have heard of it.
1: Mimetic desire leads first to conflict, Peter and Jesus as rivals, and ultimately to violence. And this violence is also personified by Satan. In the New Testament, Satan is the master of the world. In the scene of Christ's temptation, when Satan offers Jesus dominion over all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus refuses the offer but does not dispute Satan's title or question whether worldly power is Satan's to give. Satan has this power, according to Girard, because he symbolizes the system of scapegoating and victimization that makes society work. He's called the accuser, and the one he accuses, first of all, is the innocent victim whose murder founds society. In the Bible, this first victim is Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, murdered by his brother Cain, who then founds the first culture. The basis of this culture is sacrifice, the violence that expels violence and keeps what Gerard calls the bad mimesis at bay. Jesus calls it Satan driving out Satan. How
2: does Satan expel Satan? This is a definition of foundational murder. Jesus does not deny that Satan expels Satan. He's been expelling Satan for a long time. But he says he's not going to do it for long, because his kingdom is at an end. The kingdom of Satan exists, can be a kingdom, because Satan can expel Satan. Because the kingdom of Satan is a bad mimesis. If the bad mimesis did not expel itself, did not moderate itself, did not uh, uh, repress itself, there would be no kingdom of Satan
1: there would be quickly nothing at all. Satan rules by repressing himself, by using violence to control violence, and he succeeds. But his trick will only work for so long, Jesus says, because a house divided against itself cannot stand. Satan's system works only so long as people don't recognize that the victims he accuses are innocent. Jesus reveals the secret, and so disarms the whole mechanism. But if Satan can no longer drive out Satan, an alternative is necessary. Otherwise, disorder would worsen catastrophically, and as Girard says, there would quickly be nothing at all. The alternative Jesus proposes is what he calls the kingdom of heaven. Its principle, Girard says, is still imitation. Imitation, in his terms, is inevitable, since we do not create either ourselves or the world we live in but it is imitation of the one who will never imitate us. Jesus says, if you don't want to be
2: bothered by scandals, you have to imitate a model such as me, who will not become your rival. That's why Paul is entitled to say the same thing, because he's a good imitator of Jesus, who himself is a good imitator of the Father. And this chain of imitation is non-rivalrous, obviously. Today, our models, you know, for instance, Nietzsche. What does Nietzsche say to you? He says, really, he is so aware that he denied. He says, imitate me because I don't imitate anyone, which is total self-contradiction. All modern gurus tell you that. The, The individualistic guru says, imitate me insofar as I am not an imitator. They put you in a double bind. In order not to be an imitator, become one. But in, you don't have that in imitation of Christ. Imitate the imitator that I am.
1: Christian life is a chain of imitations. To imitate the Father, according to Jesus, is to identify with others and with the world as a whole. God, he says, makes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and makes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. This teaching about the kingdom of heaven, Gerard says, is a response to a crisis that had already been identified by the Hebrew prophets, the failure of sacrifice. Sacrifice, all the prophets say, is displeasing to God and no longer a workable way of harmonizing society. And so a new way must be found to tame contagious violence or what Girard calls mimetic escalation. Jesus
2: continues this theme. Sacrifices don't work anymore. Therefore, what can you do? You can behave according to the rules of the kingdom of God, which is to refuse the escalation when people provoke you. Instead of being violent, answering violence to violence, we have to answer with nonviolence. Therefore, if someone strikes you on the left cheek, offer your right cheek. If someone wants to walk a mile with you, walk two miles. It's not a political program, as the 19th century believed. It's not a social program. It's if the mimetic escalation begins, this is the moment you must drop everything. If someone makes outrageous demands on you, This is the moment when you must abandon everything, because if you follow suit, if you do the same thing, you are in the escalation, and then it's finished. You're going to kill each other, brothers. Therefore, the apocalypse is right here. Because if you don't abandon your own ways, you're going to die. The apocalypse is not some invention, you know, that the first Christians would have been like uh, a spaceship on the other side of the moon waiting for this. No, it's if we are without sacrifices, we are going to kill each other. Either we are going to love each other or we are going to die. We have no more protection against our own violence. Therefore, we are confronted with it. Either we are going to follow the rules of the kingdom of God or the situation is going to get
1: infinitely worse. Jesus' offer of the kingdom of heaven, as Girard sees it, constitutes an apocalyptic either-or. If the offer were accepted, the story would have a different ending. When it is not, what inevitably follows is Christ's passion, as Christians call the sufferings and death of Jesus. There can therefore be no separation between the teachings of Jesus and his crucifixion, a point on which Girard feels himself to be at odds with much contemporary New Testament scholarship. It is this
2: logic that uh, modern scholarship wants to avoid, wants to separate the offer of the kingdom and say, oh, that must be the real historical Jesus. And then, after that, the bad priests, ambitious and perverse, have invented everything else in order to deprive us of that um, happy Christ uh, who was not announcing anything bad because we are all... Good, and uh, there is no
1: problem with the world. (laughs) The modern scholarship that Girard says wants to divide the ethical Jesus, the happy Christ, from the theological Jesus, has a long history. 200 years ago, Thomas Jefferson cut up his King James Bible and pasted up a new New Testament. He did so, he explained in a letter to John Adams, in order to purge away the theological dross and reveal in his words, the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. The current version of this attempt to rescue the New Testament from itself, Girard says, is the Jesus Seminar, whose scholar members pursue what they call the historical Jesus. The real historical Jesus is based on this idea,
2: which is very much against the, my own views, which, that there are two Jesus that there is the Jesus, who is a real Jesus, an itinerant preacher, a Galilean peasant, they even say, whom they compare to a Greek cynic. Now the word cynic is very fashionable, when you talk about this Jesus. And this Jesus would, not, would have nothing to do with the Jesus of the Passion, who hasn't been invented, with the theologians, who are, because they have a voltairian view of the Church, really. They think that the Church is trying to fool you, to dominate you, and so forth, and that they invented the Passion and the Resurrection, in order to create a religion. And in order to do that, they have to separate the offer of the Kingdom of God. Jesus says, we all get together, in order to have the kingdom of God, to give up all this violence. You follow the rules that I give to you, and I do too. If someone strikes me on the left cheek, I offer my right cheek. And if we all do it, no cheek will be struck, you know. And, uh, of course, the people refuse. They prefer their old ways. But they have a scapegoat who is right there, who is already found. Who is the guy who tried to disturb, upset the whole system? Jesus. So far from being disconnected with a passion, the offer of the kingdom of God is absolutely fundamental. The failure of the kingdom of God means that Jesus puts himself forward as the scapegoat for that occasion. He gives, if you prefer the old system to what Jesus proposes, you need scapegoats. And the scapegoat who is there, ready to go, is Jesus himself, since he violated the rules. So, I deny very much that there is a break between two Jesuses. The search for the historical Jesus is trying to say the only historical Jesus is the one who has the little innocuous sayings and so on. There is no passion at the end. Passion was invented by the priests and the theologians. And, of course, this is the revival of a 19th-century thesis. In France, there was a famous book in the middle of the 19th century, Renan, you know, The Life of Jesus, that had tremendous influence. Well, all these theses are already there, but they are
1: written better style. Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of heaven, in Girard's view, is not just generic wisdom, nor is it something that can be detached from Jesus' eventual fate. It's a teaching that quite specifically addresses the danger of escalating violence that is created when the old sacrificial order is undone. The injunction to love your enemy and the rest, Girard says, is neither an ideological blueprint nor some sort of impossibly exacting moral standard, but a way of recognizing and dealing with certain critical situations.
2: The precepts of the kingdom of God are... If you want to avoid violence, there are moments, crucial moments, these crucial moments when uh, someone wants you to collaborate with him in the game of violence, you know. Therefore, they make outrageous demands upon you, and they secretly hope that you're going to reply the same way. You're going to get mad and give them what they want, which will be an opportunity to say the violence comes from him, not from me. You know, there are circumstances in which everything is at stake. You know, like the, the passion, when Jesus is in front of uh, the ecclesiastical establishment of the, the only religion uh, which, in his view, contains the truth, and the power of the Roman Empire, Both, you see what I mean? And there, there is no resistance, there is silence, there is nothing more to say.
0: I'm Paul Kennedy, and on Ideas Tonight, you're listening to The Scapegoat, a profile of French thinker Rene Girard, presented by David Cayley.
1: Culture begins, according to Rene Girard, with a unanimous collective murder, a turning of all against one. And this situation, he says, is precisely reproduced in the passion of Jesus, which becomes inevitable after the rejection of the offer of the kingdom. Once he is arrested and taken to the palace of the high priest, Jesus stands entirely alone, abandoned even by his disciples who disperse uncomprehending into the crowd his betrayal is dramatized by the behavior of peter the first of those whom jesus called to be his disciples peter decides to follow
2: and goes to the they all go together to the mansion or palace of the high priest and in the courtyard there is a fire and he stands by the fire there And there is a crowd of people who are the servants of the high priest and policemen, because the high priest was a uh, worldly ruler as well, uh, of a sort, to a limited extent. And there, there is the servant who says, I can recognize you. You don't speak like we do. You have a Galilean accent, you know, which is a marvelous scapegoat touch. How can he join these people? at the expense of Jesus, whom he sacrifices right then and there, without even realizing it.
1: I do not know the man, Peter says, because he wants to stay with the crowd around the fire. And this fire, Girard says, in his analysis of this story in his book The Scapegoat, is implicitly the sacred fire, which immolates the victim and unites the onlookers. Peter's betrayal, which Jesus had predicted, sums up the behavior of the disciples throughout Jesus' ministry. They misunderstand his teaching. They haggle over who will get the best places in heaven. They fall asleep during Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. They are every man, and remarkably, it is they who must have drawn this unflattering self-portrait, since it is through them and their successors that the story has come down to us. The gospel, as Girard reads it, tells the unvarnished truth about scapegoating, that we all want to warm ourselves at the fire with Peter. And the unique honesty of this confession, Girard says, can be seen by contrasting it with the story that founds our philosophical tradition, the execution of Socrates. People ask me, uh,
2: what about the death of Socrates? Isn't it the same thing? I say, but uh, there is a The death of Socrates is the scapegoat of the community, no doubt. But uh, there is a difference in the reporting of it, because in the reporting of it, the Gospel are able to tell you that they were all tempted to side with the crowd, and in a way they all abandoned Jesus. Whereas the philosophers never abandoned Socrates. The philosophers are not able to put themselves you know, in the position of uh, guilty people, guilty of scapegoating, too. There are other differences, too. But uh, it happens, and one always mentions that in connection with that, that Plato was not there when Socrates died. He stayed at home, or something. Or he had a, the flu, or something. But it didn't show up. It's kind of strange. You would say that he would have been by the side of his master at the time of his death, but he was not. Nevertheless, well, Plato the... will never say any one of us betrayed Socrates. Well, it's in the Gospel, it's the apostles themselves that we betray Jesus.
1: The disciples, who will become the first Christians, disappear into the crowd at the time of the crucifixion. Jesus is alone. And this is the key to understanding what would later become a very vexed question, who killed Jesus? The implicit answer, according to Girard, is everyone.
2: The mimetic theory tells you that every culture in the world is based on this foundational murder. And Jesus says it all the times that it's being repeated constantly, because he says, I'm going to die like all the prophets before me. He doesn't mean only the Jewish prophets, mm-hmm. since the first one he mentions is Abel. He refers to that first culture, first murder. And the Gospel of John says Satan, the devil, was a murderer since Arche, the beginning. The first culture. You see, so there, and uh, in John, it says, and you're going to do it again. But uh, to say the Jews have crucified Christ is only to say, by crucifying Christ, this is a first such murder which gets fully revealed. And I think it's ridiculous, from a Christian viewpoint, to say that Jews have not killed Christ. But everybody else has killed Christ and has killed victims, which is exactly like the equivalent of Christ. So the only difference in the Jews is that they participate in this revelation. They participate so well that they play their role of deniers of Christ until the end. (laughs) See what I mean? I think one has to say that. And in Christian theory, the Jews will be the first to understand Christianity really. You know, and I believe that deeply, because they'll be the first to understand what I'm saying now, that they are only the representatives of humanity there, of all cultures which do the same thing, but you can reveal it only in a culture like the Jewish one, which incorporates so much truth already, that uh, the lie of the foundational murder is closer to the surface. Is about to be revealed, and is revealed in the Gospels.
1: One of the things that indicates to Girard that the killing of Jesus is a repetition of the first murder, the founding murder, is a sentence he speaks from the cross in the Gospel of Luke. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Until I read Girard, I had taken this familiar saying as no more than a platitude, a sort of gracious superiority to the crowd, But Girard made me see that it is, in fact, a literal and precise definition of scapegoating. It means
2: that the scapegoaters literally don't know what they are doing. That it's a kind of unconscious. They believe the victim is guilty. They believe they are doing their duty. There is a sentence which corresponds to that in Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Peter a few days after the cross, talks to the crowd of Jerusalem and tells them, you don't realize you've killed the Son of God, the Messiah, but you're not as guilty as you, as you think, if you understand what you've done, because you are ignorant. You are in ignorance. This is the same meaning as the sentence of Jesus. And I think it has to be uh, Interpreted in a technical way. The mimetic violence is unconscious, doesn't know what it's doing. The mob is always innocent. Don't count on the mob to tell you what they've really done. They'll give you the myth of Oedipus. They say there was a guy, he had killed his father and married his mother, and we had to get rid of him. That's what they would say. And we judged him, you know, according to the rules. And uh, we decided he had to be expelled.
1: The unconsciousness of the crowd, to which Jesus points from the cross, has been illustrated again and again in our own time. His exact words turn up in the confession of a Rwandan man, which I saw quoted in my newspaper a few years ago. This man was in prison awaiting trial for having killed neighbor children with a homemade wooden club spiked with nails. He told the reporter, I didn't want to. I didn't mean to kill them. I didn't know what I was doing. Not knowing what you're doing, for Girard, is the key to the entire realm of mythology and the archaic sacred, in which gods become victims and victims gods, but the victimization is never recognized as the act of the crowd, but always thought of as the design of the divinity. In the gospel, he says, it is only those who have woken up and recognized what they have been doing who encounter the risen God. The resurrected
2: Christ appears only to the people who ultimately seceded from the mob. The resurrected God of the myth appears to the mob. Is the God of the mob. Vox Populi, Vox Dei. Is the voice of the
1: mob. The mythological God embodies the entire community. He or she quite literally is that community in a projected form. The risen Christ is apparent only to a minority who have seceded as Gerard says, from the crowd.
2: In myth, you never have any dissident minority that will tell you Oedipus has not committed parricide and incest. In the Gospels, you have an enormous majority who say, oh, Jesus is a blasphemer and parricidal and incestuous. And then you have a minority which is very small, since this minority is not there at the beginning. At the beginning, all the disciples are scattered. It takes the resurrection for them to say the truth. In other words, the anthropological truth, the judicial truth, that Jesus is obviously innocent, comes only through the resurrection. That's what one has to see. And affects only a few people who immediately, when they say, hey, hey, this scapegoat is innocent, scapegoats in general are innocent. Immediately, they become likely victims themselves. Because the crowd, in order to maintain its truth, will kill anybody
1: who denies that truth. According to Girard, the Gospel can be distinguished from mythological narratives of resurrection by the fact that Jesus appears not to the crowd, but only to those few who can recognize his innocence. This does not mean that for Girard, The resurrection is nothing but the recognition of Jesus' innocence. As a believing Christian, he asserts that it was a real event and a real human being who walked and talked and ate with his disciples after the crucifixion. But this event, instead of ratifying the crowd's perspective, makes it possible for some to dissent from it. The resurrection breaks the spell of unanimous opinion which Gerard thinks is the basis for the old sense of the sacred. By the light of the resurrection, the disciples can see, in retrospect, what they could not possibly have seen at the time, that they themselves have been immersed in the mind of the crowd. So when they come back, they come
2: back in a very different way. And they come back after the experience of betrayal as an awareness of their self-deception. And the two essential conversions in the Gospels are the conversions of Peter and Paul. Peter, after his denial, and in Luke, Jesus goes through the courtyard at that moment and looks at him. And there, Peter understands that he's a persecutor of Jesus. And in the case of Paul, it's Jesus himself on the road to Damascus who asks him, why do you persecute me? To become a Christian is to become aware of oneself as a persecutor of Christ. And one is always a persecutor of Christ, insofar as one lives inside this circle. But in the case of Peter or Paul, they are made aware in a more powerful way than anybody else, because Peter is in that courtyard, and that scene that we talked about. And Paul has been persecuting Christians. He has attended the stoning of uh, uh, Stephen, one of the first Christians. And he's going to Damascus to persecute Christians a little more. He feels it's his duty. And on the way he encounters uh, Jesus.
1: Passion of Jesus, in René Girard's view, corresponds to rituals found all over the world. There's not an incident in the story, Girard has written, that cannot be found in countless instances. The preliminary trial, the derisive crowd, the grotesque honors accorded to the victim, and the degrading punishment that takes place outside the holy city in order not to contaminate it. What makes the story unique is the fact that the victim is someone who stands completely outside of the violence, of which everyone else is, without exception, a prisoner. Someone capable of rising above the violence, which until then had risen above mankind. And this luminous victim, unresisting, but also completely uninvolved in the sacrificial game, makes visible what today we take for granted, the ugliness of the violence to which he submits. If
2: you see the truth of that violence, suddenly that violence repels you. Before the cross, every violence is portrayed as heroic and so forth in literature, the epic, even tragedy, justifies the casting out of the victim. Only the Bible doesn't do that. Therefore, we owe so much to the Bible that we have a feeling it comes from us, and we cannot recognize our debt. When we criticize the Bible, we can criticize that only with the Bible, not with the Iliad, not with Greek philosophy. We have to criticize it. With, we, we have assimilated so much, and we are not aware that the substance we have assimilated comes from the Bible, which is that violence is ugly and not heroic. And then it reveals what that, that violence is the, is the birth of the community, the ugly birth of the community. If you look at the cross and see it, you see, and in Mark, you know, in Mark no one understands, everybody, even God, abandons Christ. But it ends on what note? On the note of the centurion, who says, yes, he was the Son of God. You know, the only converted guy is the guy who has nothing to do with it. He's there as a soldier. He's been drafted, who knows from where, you know, and suddenly it strikes him when he sees the cross
1: that the whole world is changed. Truly, this man was the son of God, says the Roman soldier on duty at the foot of the cross. And this was what the whole Christian church, after several centuries of debate, would finally come to believe—that Jesus is God. What this recognition means, Girard says, is that only someone completely identified with God could have understood and undone the closed circle of violence in which humanity was trapped.
2: Jesus is the only man to live on this earth in such a way that he can destroy single-handedly the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of Satan rests upon the fact that ultimately we do his bidding. The victim he offers us as a scapegoat, he says he's guilty, we take it as guilty. And then we divinize that victim. And then we have that order. But Jesus crushes that order forever by refusing this. He's expelled and he's a scapegoat, but he takes it upon himself. I mean, he's a willing scapegoat. He prefers to die, in other words, than to share in the sacrificing of others. He prefers to die than to join the mob with Peter. You see, because the kingdom of Satan is really autonomous, in the sense that it's that circle of violence, you know, that is shut upon itself. Jesus opens it. Jesus violates the rules with impunity, finally. They kill him, and it doesn't do any good.
1: It doesn't do any good because Jesus suffers the whole procedure, but is not claimed by it. He owes it no allegiance, neither seeking nor resisting his victimization. And in this way, he exposes the entire mechanism of sacrificial violence to the light of day. Satan, in the language of the early Christians, had been duped by the cross.
2: Satan duped by the cross comes from a sentence in the 1st Corinthians of Paul. And this sentence says, it's just so powerful, if the powers, if the kings of this world, that's the same thing as the powers and principality, and same thing as Satan. Let's say, if Satan had known he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This sentence is inevitably very important to me, because what does it mean? It means Satan is fooled in triggering the mechanism. Why? Because he thinks the mechanism is going to remain hidden, as usual, that no one will see that the victim is innocent, that his accusation will work like it always does. Therefore, Satan doesn't realize that the truth is going to come out in the, in the in the cross, and it's a very important sentence. So from this, the fathers of the church developed the thesis of that Satan was duped by the cross, and it's a very powerful thesis. Some of them even had the metaphors of God as a fisherman, and. The bait being Jesus, and Satan being the fish that swallows the bait and doesn't realize he's caught. What does it mean? It means Satan is going to kill Jesus and doesn't realize that far from consolidating his kingdom, it leads to the modern world, to the revelation, to the more and more complete revelation all the time.
1: When René Girard first presented his interpretation of the gospel in his book, things hidden since the foundation of the world. He called it a non-sacrificial reading. A sacrificial reading sees the death of Jesus as required by God in order to cancel the debt we have incurred by our disobedience. A non-sacrificial reading refuses the disturbing idea that God demands the death of his Son and instead focuses on the cross's power to expose and undo the lie in which humankind had been a prisoner. But as Girard's dialogue with other Christians expanded, he realized that many people were still using the word sacrifice, in its other sense of self-giving, for what he was calling a non-sacrificial interpretation. The solution, he decided, was to abandon his potentially divisive term and instead draw a distinction within the word sacrifice itself, a distinction that he finds illustrated in the biblical story of the judgment of King Solomon, or Salomon in French.
2: For years, I carried that story in my head, and I knew that the secret of everything was there. You know, because maybe we sum up the story rapidly. People know the judgment of Solomon, but it's better to say it again. One fine day, two prostitutes go to Solomon, And these two prostitutes live together in a house, all by themselves, and they both have a child at about the same time. One of the children dies during the night, and the two prostitutes show up in front of Solomon, and they both say the same thing. They are very good doubles. They both say, my rival, this woman, during the night, her child died because she rolled over him while sleeping. And she took the live the live child in my bed, and she put the dead child to make it seem as if my child had died. And Solomon repeats, the first woman says this, the second woman says that, what can you do? No way to find the truth. So, bring me a sword. I will cut the child in two. And the first woman reacts, saying, yes, fine. Let's do that. My rival will not have that child. And the second, side sh- second woman says, give her the child. I want the child to live. I prefer to lose the child. And the life of the child is the most important thing. You know. <clears throat> Therefore, The Middle Ages said that the figure of Christ, you know, the figure of Christ, figura Christi, is the allegorical interpretation in which you're looking for the character who replaces Christ. They said the figure of Christ was Solomon, but that's not true. The figure of Christ is obviously the good prostitute. She prefers to sacrifice all her interests, and even herself, you know, because Solomon may believe that she couldn't stand the the heat there and to lose the child so that the child will live. Therefore she's really profoundly against sacrifice as an instrument of death. You know, and of course Solomon understands immediately. He's like Joseph with his brothers, you see. So in things hidden I said, you cannot use the same word for what the first woman wants to do and for what the second woman is doing. Because the separation between the two, there is no difference which is greater than this one. And you use the same word, sacrifice, isn't that a scandal? Shouldn't they be separated? Is not what the story is about. But now, I would say, The story is about that separation, but why does the story exist in the first place and brings these two women together? Why are they together there? I think the story tells you the whole history of religion. The continuity, in a way, between the two forms of sacrifice, and how much the second one, how much better, of course, the second one is than the first.
1: The continuity of sacrifice from its victimizing form to its self-giving form, leads on into a discussion of Christianity's impact on the world, which I'll take up with René Girard in the final two programs of this series. Christians, too, would become victimizers, scapegoating, in particular, the Jews, but they would never be able entirely to forget the words their master addresses to the Pharisees in the Gospel. Jesus looks at
2: the Pharisees, and so forth, and say they are building magnificent monuments to the prophets their fathers have killed. When they are doing that, what are they really doing? They are saying, if we had lived at the time of our fathers, we would not have joined them in killing the prophets. So, we can say that uh, Christian anti-semitism is the same thing which you have to transpose. If we had lived in the days of our Jewish fathers, we would not have joined them in killing Jesus, you know. Or today, the the incredible self-righteousness of the new generations, toward the Second World War and this generation, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have joined them. We would have been so heroic vis-à-vis the Gestapo, that we would all, all have died, rather than surrendering one inch of our innocence. You know, This is always the same thing. And today, it's mostly the past, which is scapegoating. And I think I've done some of it myself. That's why I said to you yesterday, I'm more conservative than you realize, because today I'm very afraid of scapegoating the past, especially the recent past, which is the most tempting our fathers. But you know, this sentence in the Gospel is very interesting because people try to say, oh, it was included by the church as so well. We know the Jews really built monuments, tombs to the prophets whose corpses they didn't have because they had been killed centuries before. Therefore, that sentence in the Gospel must go back to a time which you cannot attribute to the early Christian Church, and so forth. And when you think of the power of that sentence, and how it applies to practically everything after that, and to all the mistakes of the Christians themselves, who are always scapegoating the recent Christianity, which was interpreting the Gospels wrong, It's just so powerful that it takes your breath away. Paul says, Thou shalt not judge, O man, because you who judge do the same thing. Why do you do the same thing? Because you're constantly judging your neighbor, you're constantly criticizing, you're constantly saying, I'm innocent at the expense of someone else. Because if everybody were as innocent as I am, the world would be better. Therefore, they must not be innocent. (laughs) Someone must be responsible for all this mess. (laughs) Yeah.
0: On Ideas tonight, you've listened to part three of The Scapegoat, a five-hour series about the thought of René Girard. René Girard's new book, I See Satan, Fall Like Lightning, is published in Canada by Novalis and is available in bookstores. Tonight's program was produced and presented by David Cayley, with the assistance of Richard Handler. The series continues tomorrow night. Our technical director is David Field, associate producer... Liz Naj. You can order a printed transcript of this series for $25 or a set of audio cassettes for $39.95. Write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. By email, it's ideas at cbc.ca. We also accept credit card orders by phone, area code 416205. Seven three six seven. The executive producer of Ideas is Richard Handler, and I'm Paul Kennedy. Please stay tuned now to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news.